Afternoon, church. How are you? <laughs> no heckling, please. <laughs> no, it's always a pleasure to, to be here. It's a great privilege and responsibility to be asked to teach uh, the congregation, the people of God, and I do it with great pleasure and a bit of trepidation. Um, but we do it unto the Lord, don't we? Yeah. Um, so great to be here. Today we'll be reading uh, and talking through Psalms 149 and 150. So over the last couple of weeks we've been doing the Summer in Psalms series. Guys like Rob, Mark have come up on two separate occasions to preach two different psalms. I've got the great pleasure of preaching through two psalms in one hit, so cancel your dinner plans, right? <laughs> we want to give this due treatment that it deserves um, let me just pray and, and, and we'll read the text and we'll, we'll, we'll start. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this afternoon. We thank you for the opportunity again to gather together as your people assembled in your sanctuary, Lord. Would you speak through your lowly servant and let your words uh, reach the hearts of your people? Would you speak to us all, Lord? Help us to uh, walk away loving you more fervently having more of a, a high esteem of you and what you've done through Jesus Christ for us, Lord, and to treasure you even the more in our hearts and praise you even the more. We thank you for everything. Pray for those that are not able to be here today. Be with them wherever they are and, uh, and keep them safe as well, Lord. And we look forward to the time where we be able to congregate together and assemble together as, as an entire family, Lord. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 So we've come to the end of our Summer in the Psalms series, and today we look at the final two psalms, numbers 149 and 150. Um, and it's been mentioned earlier in the series by, by the guys that the whole anthology of, of psalms, all 150 poems, you know, they've been organized into collections or, or books, five different books, and each book contains a certain number of, of psalms. These two that we're looking at, at are obviously at the, the end, the last book. Um, and Psalm 150 in particular closes not just the Psalms, um, but, but, but it, it's, it's, it's a doxology. You see, it doesn't close just the book that it's within. It closes the entire anthology of the Psalms. And that last book starts from Psalm 107 through to 150. And obviously, we're going to be looking at the last two. Now, among other Psalms in this in this last collection, this last book of Psalms, you can consider 149 and 150 as the Hallelujah Psalms because they start and end with that call, that call to praise the Lord. And that word praise, Hallel, in the Hebrew, Yah, Yahweh. So praise Yahweh, effectively. So they start and end with the calls to praise the Lord. And so let me, let me read through the two of them. Uh, uh, in, in one hit now, and then we'll, we'll talk about them. So I'm reading from the ESV, okay? Your translations might be a bit different, but starting at Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. 
Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high, pra- the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is the honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord powerful psalms to encourage us. I could stop right there and we've got the gist of it, isn't it? But in thinking about praise and how we ought to be worshipping and praising our great God for the gift of his son and our consequent great salvation, if we ask the question, well, how would God want us to thank him? How would God want us to praise him? How would God want us to worship him for the cross of Christ? These two last, these last two psalms give us plenty of answers to that. If we're going to worship God as he wants to be worshipped, if we're going to praise him as he deserves to be praised, what are we to do? So let's take Psalm 150 as the, the guiding text, and I'll be making references to 149, particularly to cover the points that 150 doesn't mention. So what does it mean to really praise God? What does it mean to praise God in a fitting manner? That's really important. Psalm 150 is as relevant to us today as it was to those that it was written to originally, the original audience. There is nothing in this psalm about specific acts of God, if you look through it. The psalm is applied actually to anything and everything for which we would praise God. And for us, the supreme thing is the sacrifice of Christ, isn't it? Notice how the psalm begins. Praise the Lord. That's a command. Praise the Lord. And that command, by the way, is repeated 13 times in 150 alone. And this psalm is like a culminating psalm in the Psalter. Uh, 13 times we're called, called to praise him. And it's a fitting culmination because if you study the psalms, you'll see an interesting flow in the way that it's put together. In the early section of the psalms, there are many psalms of sadness Uh, psalms of lament, psalms uh, of suffering and pain and sorrow um, and trouble and difficulty. Many of those psalms we identify with, don't we? Yeah, Because they reflect the pain of the human condition. They they, they reflect the suffering um, of living in this fallen world, the sadness that so easily finds its way into our human existence. But as you begin to move through the psalms, the psalms of lament begin to give way to psalms of praise, uh, psalms of joy and thanksgiving, exhilaration. And the closer you get to the final psalm, the more the crescendo of praise and thanks and joy and rejoicing gets louder until it finally culminates in the pinnacle of psalms, Psalm 150, which is pure praise, just pure praise. And so what you have here then in psalms especially in this Psalm 150 is, well, in the Psalms overall, actually, is the path of a believer's life, isn't it? From suffering to glory, the path 
of the believer's life from pain to praise. And Psalm 150 then is, in a real sense, a culmination of the glory, the hope, and the praise which should be in the hearts of the people of God. This is the peak. This is the peak. When you've come through all the valleys of life and all the pain of life and you've ascended and climbed your way up to the peak, top of that mountain, this is the peak of praise. You're looking down on everything below you that you've been through. Psalm 150 is pure praise. And so we could ask the question then, how does this psalm direct us to praise God? You know, if we're going to praise God today for the provision of Jesus Christ, how are we going to do that? What does this psalm tell us? Well, the psalmist, and it doesn't say who it is necessarily, but the psalmist, like a good journalist, covers all the issues here. In this psalm, he talks about the where, the why, the how, the who of praise. Now, so where do we start? Why do we praise? Uh, why do we praise? Where, uh, um, where do we praise? How do we praise? And who is to be praised? And who praises? Let's start with the first one, where. So verse 1, praise God in his sanctuary. Cut 150 verse 1, praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. So first of all, we praise God in his sanctuary, such as, such as this. What does that mean? Well, his temple, his holy place, which was the place where his people would gather for worship. And remember, in the time of the Psalms, people gathered in the temple to worship God. Um, if you go back to Psalm 149, verse 1, you will see there that we are to praise him in the assembly of the godly. So the first thing the psalmist wants to say is, you praise him in the place where his people gather for worship. That's where you praise him. We come together on the Lord's Day, such as we have done today, for the purpose of praising God, right? And you say, well, why do you preach? Very simple, to give you more to praise him. Why do we teach you the Bible? So that you'll know him better and you'll understand what he has done better and you'll have more for which to praise him. Everything is geared to worship and glorify and praise God. And the focal point of everything is God himself. So when God's people gather, it is to focus on him. The job of myself today, the job of whoever's leading worship is to pull all of you together to praise Simple as that. We are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Hebrews 10.25 says that. You need this. I need this. You need to be involved in praising God collectively with his redeemed people in that place which is his sanctuary. Yeah? And he dwells and inhabits the praise of his people, doesn't he? Yeah. There are plenty of Christians that uh, you know, they'd like to think that they can just be content to worship God any place or online, for example, in our culture, yeah, they don't really need to be with his people, his assembled saints. Well, that's unsustainable for your Christian walk, isn't it? Yeah, it isn't also what the Lord mandates at all. It's not what we read here. And you're always weaker outside the company of God's people than you are within it. Yeah, uh, think about it. Even where, think about the countries where Christianity is prohibited. Don't the Christians there make a concerted effort to still get together and worship the Lord? They make every effort to gather to worship. People also sometimes say, well, the smaller the church, the better. And if it just gets down to a few, that's even better. That's how I like it. And I know we've got a fantastic fellowship here. We're not the largest church, but 
But let's think about this for a minute. You know, the more praise, the fuller it is, isn't it more exhilarating? You know, recently, this last week, we had the opportunity to visit the northeast of England. So we, we visited Durham Cathedral as well as, uh, was it, York Minster as well. And I remember in Durham particularly, there was a choir rehearsing at the front. Um, I don't think it was the fullest choir, but they were rehearsing all the same. The visitors were quiet uh, and... and um, the congregation wasn't there because it's, it was visitors, right? But just the voices and the, the the music that you heard reverberated throughout that hall, that sanctuary, the high walls, the decorated ceilings. And I imagined what it would be like if it were full. Because as it was, it sounded otherworldly. It was heavenly. In Revelations 19.1 teaches that when we rejoice in heaven, it will be how? with a loud voice, as a great multitude. Yeah, and we'll cry out that wonderful chorus of praise. Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belongs to our God. So there is every reason to desire fuller praise, to revel in the fact that our church can grow, and we should want that to, to be the case. The psalmist is calling, to communal, calling us to communal worship, communal praise, when God's people come together and focus on corporate praise. And, and that, as I said, is, is, is actually you know, the purpose of our coming together, isn't it? Now, all throughout the history of Israel, there were Sabbath assemblies in the synagogues uh, where there were holy convocations in Jerusalem for all the people. So the assembly of the saints um, is the place where God is to be praised. And we come together for that purpose. We come here to lift God up. So look at Psalm 149, verse 4. And we read here that the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. You know, God is so rich in grace and mercy that despite the sin and the weakness of his people, he redeems them. He gives them as a love gift to his son, Christ. And he takes pleasure in this people. That's reason enough to praise him corporately together, isn't it? That is how we, lowly but redeemed people, can bless the Lord. That's how we bless the Lord. Our worship to God is our loving duty, but we ourselves, think about it, are God's pleasure. I don't even have the words to describe how that ought to make you feel. I, I think it, this is simply one of the most beautiful and assuring verses in Scripture about how how God feels about his gathered people. But secondly, this where question is it's not limited only. It's, it's also unlimited. The second statement in verse 1 of, of, verse, of uh, 150, praise him in his mighty expanse. That's another term for the heavens, the created universe. And, that, and what the psalmist is saying here is, Collectively, we praise him as we gather as assembled saints in, in his presence in the sanctuary. But individually, we praise him anywhere and everywhere in his entire universe. And it's not instead of communal worship, guys. It's as well as. Because we're simply not always gathered together, are we? Yeah. So the command to praise sweeps through infinity of creation and calls for praise throughout all that is in the heavens. So wherever you are on this planet, wherever you're flying around on this planet, wherever you are in outer space, wherever you are in any place, 
you are to praise him. Simple as that. Praise, then, is just it's not just a collective function of God's redeemed people brought together. It is also an individual function of, of, of God's child as he or she lifts up her or his heart anywhere and everywhere to praise God. Not just on the Lord's day either, but any day. Back in Psalm 149.5, it says, Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. You know, exult with the U is not exult with an A, by the way. To exult with an A is to esteem something highly, to raise something up in power. We should exalt God. We'll be singing a chorus about that shortly after this, but here we're told to exult. This simply means that we're to be extremely joyful, extremely joyful, joyful in glory. So whether you're waking, sleeping, wherever you are, even when on your pillow, let praise come out of your mouth. Verse 6 says, let the high praises of God, lofty praises, guys, not trivial things, not shallow things, not trite things, lofty, high things, even when you lie down on your bed, let your praise be of that fashion. And nothing is really as, as solitary as that, is it? That's in your privacy. So from the great convocations of assembled saints all the way down to the most private moment in your own bed and everywhere in between, you are to be praising the Lord continually. So the question of where then? In the assembly of the saints and everywhere. In the assembly of the saints collectively, everywhere individually. You need this assembly. You're commanded to be a part of God's people brought together for the purpose of praise and it's a foolish thing to avoid us. So second question, the why. Why are we to have such unceasing, incessant praise going on everywhere? And the answer comes in verse 2. Look at 150, verse 2. Why? Just as there are two locations for praise, there are two reasons for praise. Number one, praise him for his mighty deeds. So the first thing we're called to do is praise God for what he has done. There is a hymn that says, praise the Almighty for what he has done. And that's accurate, isn't it? You know, praise him for what he has done, his mighty deeds. If you go back to, um, you don't need to go to it, but Psalm 146, for example, um, you'll find many examples of what God has done. From verse 6 onwards, it says, you praise, praise him who made heaven and earth, the sea, all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. That is he. He's faithful to his promise who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, sets the prisoners free, opens the eyes of the blind, raises up those that are bowed down, loves the righteous, protects the strangers, supports the fatherless and the widow, thwarts the way of the wicked. The Lord will reign forever. Thy God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. That's what it says. So you can go through the litany of everything that God has done. That is motivation for praise. Recite his wonderful works, people. That's pure praise. We sing songs of, and hymns that speak of what God has done. We remember what he has done in our prayers. He's created this universe. He sustains it. He's the one who delivers us from death and sin and hell. He is the one who is our savior. He has saved us and redeemed us. He's the one who continues to protect us. He keeps his covenant 
with us. He gives us continuing life. All that he has done. He can study the Old Testament for no other reason just than that to praise God. You can go back to Genesis and just recite all of God's wonderful works. From the great miracle of creation, creating everything from nothing, spinning planets into existence, the sun, moon, stars, then creating living things, and finally man breathed in him the breath of life. And he was made in his own image, and he put him in paradise. And when he sinned and he fell, he sought to redeem him. And in that process, he called out a people whom he delivered from bondage by the miraculous parting of the Red Sea. All the things that he has done. Miracle after miracle, all the way up to the life of Jesus and his death and his resurrection. We can recite all the great things that God has done. That is praise. That is praise. But secondly, we're to praise him not only for what he has done, but exactly for who he is. And that, in verse 2, praise him because of his excellent greatness. And we're talking about his character, his person. Praise him for his sovereignty, his immutability, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his almighty power, his grace, his mercy, his kindness, his goodness, and on and on and on. And that's exactly what you read in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a record of what God has done. It's the revelation of who he is. So mainly you study the Old Testament so that you can know God and know what he has done, and then what? Respond accordingly in praise and obedience. Psalm 149 verse 2 also says, Israel is to be glad in his maker. The children of Zion should rejoice in their king. So what does it mean to rejoice in a person? I'd hope that we all know what it's like to love the presence of someone precious to us. You know, their company, their, the way they add value and richness to our lives. You want to be around them, don't you? You, you want to be with them all the time. How much so then should the people of God be glad in he who made them? And even more, in he who, has, who is their king. He rules over them with love, with grace fairness, justice, and mercy. Rejoice in the attributes of God, for he is good and more precious than the most precious thing or person you know. So when you praise God, you praise him for what he has done and for who he is. You recite his glorious attributes. That's praise. Thank him for all those things and many more that I've just mentioned that are true about his character, not to speak of his great love which he loved us, and he sent his son Jesus Christ due to that love. Thirdly, we see the how of praise. I think this is quite a remarkable section because in verses 3 to 5 of Psalm 150, which is the largest part of this psalm, is actually devoted to the how. It speaks of instrumental means, doesn't it? With trumpet sound, harp and lyre, timbrel and dancing, Stringed instruments, pipe, loud cymbals, resounding cymbals. We are to praise him. This is also echoed in 149 verse 3, but I think 150 just gives us more instruments to consider here. So a variety of means are given to, to us here as a means of praising him. What is, what's interesting, though, is, see, there's no mention of words. It doesn't say anything about words of praise. So are we to offer God wordless praise 
Obviously, the answer is no. Because if you look back at Psalm 149.1, what does it say there? It says, praise the Lord. How? Sing to the Lord a new song. Yeah, and in many places in the Psalms, we are to sing songs, to praise God with our, with our lips. And the writer, even the writer of Hebrew, Hebrews rehearses that as well. So to us, what is a new song? Well, a new song might very well be a newly composed song that we sing together in worship. It could be an existing song that we just sing in a different, in a new way, perhaps. Or it could be an existing song that we just sing again after a period of time of not having sung it. But either way, what we need to do is every time that we experience the Lord's mercies, which are new every day, yeah, our praise and our worship should mature and take on a new expression of adoration. That's what should happen. Our songs really should be commensurate with our maturity, our experience of and knowledge of the Lord's continual work in our lives. So, you know, those of us that are married, you know, we know that unless we express our love to our spouses in new and interesting and different ways, things get stale, isn't it? Yeah, routine overpowers passion. Things get dull, things get trivial. Same with how we praise God. Sing to God a new song. So we're to use words. We're to recite his attributes. We've already seen what it said. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him for his excellent greatness. So the rehearsal, rehearsing his attributes, rehearsing his mighty deeds. But now what you have here in verses 3 to 5 are like an accompaniment, musical or instrumental accompaniment to that. And in, in that culmination of praise, that rising of praise, the emphasis on praising God with all your might, calling together all means possible to the exhilaration of praise. That's what we're called to do. And he mentions use strings. And by the way, the main musical instruments in Israel at the time are mentioned here in categories of strings, percussion, and wind instruments. It mentions the harp, the lyre, the string, uh, timbrel, um, percussions like cymbal, twice in fact, timbrel, yeah, as well. And in the case of wind, wind instruments, you've got the trumpet, you've got pipe, like a clarinet, a flute. So these are categories that are typical of instruments that are used by Jews in their musical expression. And what is psalmist, the psalmist is saying here is, you know, gather up everything in an exuberant expression of praise by every means. And it even throws in a physical means, dancing, dancing. As you look at these instruments, many things come to mind. First thing is that our context is not the same as their context. Because, you know, when we hear praise him with a trumpet sound, you know, sometimes I'm thinking of, you know, my favorite trumpet players, Chet Baker and some of these guys. No, no nothing to do with that. Yeah. When you think about the harp and lie, you think about some, some cool guitarist. N nothing like that. What, what, what's happening here is, because when you read the Psalms, the, you know, the, the, the Jews had a different thought process when, when, when it comes to instruments. Um, if you want to really worship God, get out the trumpets, get out the stringed instruments, get out everything you can. He's saying that because when a Jew saw and heard a trumpet, what did he think of? Any devout Jew would remember the great religious and, uh, ceremonies and festivals. These instruments were shrouded in history. It meant something significant to them his, in a historical context. Trumpets were blown to announce official sacrifices at Jerusalem. 
they were they were blown to announce the Day of Atonement. They were blown on that glorious day when the Ark of God arrived in Jerusalem. Trumpets were blown to call the people to worship, to call the people to battle. Trumpets were blown to announce that a king was anointed or was ascending the throne. So you see, a trumpet carried with it a whole lot of history. It's like a symbol of glorious moments that had enriched the Jewish life. And consider the harp, the lyre, in verse 3. These are instruments of joy. They were played at dedications uh, at the temple. Um, they, they were played when the new walls of the rebuilt Jerusalem was, you know, was, 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 were erected. These were great events. And the harp and lyre were also played to accompany prophecy and sacrifices. They were played to celebrate victory in battle. You see that in Second Chronicles and Nehemiah and in First Samuel 10. These lovely, sweet, plucking sounds of praise would not only give emotional expression to the hearts of worship, but they remind the Jews of all those great events in their history. And then there was the timbrel, the tambourine, and dancing. Here you've got means of joy. The tambourine it was a, a percussion instrument with with a little twinkling, tinkling sound. It was used to express great joy. And this kind of tambourine, by the way, was used to celebrate military victories. It was a celebrating instrument, and it would remind people of great triumph and great celebration and dancing. Well, with dancing, I think what we have to do is we've got to forget about all we understand about dancing, especially in our modern culture. We're not talking about couples. We're not talking about anything immoral, anything carnal, anything with sexual overtones, uh, anything less than the true expression of godly joy. Dance is often contrasted regularly in Scripture with another thing, mourning. In the book of Ecclesiastes, for example, it says there's a time to dance and there's a time to mourn. Mourning was sackcloth and ashes and weariness and uh, being bent over in humiliation. Um, and the opposite was joy and exuberance in the expression of dance. And a dance was used to celebrate military victory. For example, you find Miriam, Moses' sister, dancing and leading the women of Israel um, and playing the tambourine. And they were celebrating Exodus 15 when the drowning of Pharaoh in the Red Sea the deliverance of the Israelites, all the women were jumping around and hitting tambourines and rejoicing with great joy. They were dancing. And we find repeated references to how women danced, for example, to celebrate King Saul, the victories of David over the enemies of God. In Judges 21, women were dancing about the harvest celebration, skipping along and perhaps waving their arms in the air and, uh, and just celebrating and showing their great joy. Now, dance isn't particularly recorded in Scripture as used for worship collectively in Israel. In other words, um, we don't see it in collective worship. The only time we see it, actually, is, is a bad time, Exodus 32, when the Israelites, remember, they'd made a golden calf, and what they were doing was they were dancing before this golden idol. But in the worship of Jehovah, we find no instance of dancing as a regular part of corporate worship, but... It was a way in which an individual could express joy. And probably the best illustration of that is what Rob was reading beforehand to start this whole service, Second Samuel 6. You know the story. David was so excited when the ark of God came and was delivered. He was so exuberant. And that says that he danced before the Lord in a linen ephod. Well, what's a linen ephod? It's, it's like an apron-like garment 
that was usually worn by priests, but it's just that he wore a plain linen garment, basically. So you say, why make an issue of that? What was, what was the problem with that? Well, you see, in that story, if you recall, because he was king, he would normally wear kingly garments. Normally he'd have all the trappings of royalty on, but he threw off all these trappings and he danced before the Lord in just the plain linen apron. Um, some might say the also common dress of the everyday person. He humbled himself, basically. And you know, his wife, Michal, was a big social climber. She didn't like that. This woman, she saw him dancing, and she, it says that she despised him. You know what bothered her was that he would humiliate himself like that. She didn't like it unless he had all the, the, the kingly garments on. She didn't, she didn't think it was appropriate for a king to just get out there and dress like any other person or, or to be humble like any other person and just jump around. And it says he, David, was leaping before the Lord. I mean, he was so filled with joy that it was just coming out in his bodily expression. And so she just had a go at him, joy killer. And David was undeterred. And you read in 2 Samuel 21, 6, 21, it says, he, says, he says to her, I will humble myself and I will show my joy and thanks to the Lord because it's right. And you know what God did? He cursed her. She would never have another ch- child until the day she died. She was con- cursed for condemning David for dancing in humility before the Lord. So I think what we can take from that is dancing before the Lord in humility must be quite important to God if it ended up in a curse on one who despised it. A sacred kind of expression of joy and dance where you just sort of, you're sort of filled with joy that it comes out in physical expression is important. Now think about this. Why do children skip? Next time you see a child skipping, just ask yourself that question. What, what makes them skip? It's not genetics, is it? What is it? It's joy. It's joy. They're happy about something or about nothing in particular, but they're happy. And jumping around and delightfully singing a little song. What is that? That is joy. And that's what David was doing. And that, there's a place for that kind of expression. Maybe not necessarily in gathered worship, but there is a place for it all the same in the life an experience of God's child. The psalmist goes on to talk about stringed instruments, you know, the strings and and even flutes and and the pipe. And those other instruments are generally used for other occasions of joy. Uh, You find them throughout Israel's history, and they were really common. Cymbals, those are the kind of things that were used at sacrifices. So they were used in the moving of the Ark of the Covenant. Um, So all of these instruments, apart from just being means by which praise can be enhanced, they become great symbols of redemptive history to the Jew. So what is God saying to us through this psalm and Psalm 149? He's basically saying, look, gather up all the means that you've got and pull together everything, all the memories, and just pour out your praise to God. Everything that you have that means and reminds you of God's goodness, praise him for that. It's a magnificent picture. I think the greatest description, by the way, of this kind of praise I think it's found in 1 Chronicles 13.8. You don't need to turn to it, but in this passage, what you've got is the arrival of the ark. And David, it says, and all Israel was celebrating before God with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps, tambourines, cymbals, and with trumpets. There it is, the whole orchestra, right there. And the key phrase, with all their might. 
And you know what? You need corporate fellowship, corporate assembly, corporate gathering to, to be able to do that, to sing with all your might and worship the Lord with all your might. We don't have a very big band here, but still, whatever we do have, it helps to lift us, doesn't it? Yeah, it's tremendously exciting. Now, you can't do this in, in class or in the office or in a meeting. There's a place for this sort of thing. You don't want to worship the Lord with all your might necessarily in the office. You try and take your shofar to a sales meeting and see what happens to you. <laughs> There's a place for that. And that's why we gather here. Corporate worship. That's where we assemble together to worship like that. So if you're going to worship God like this, it's going to be in corporate worship um, with God's redeemed people. And of course, there are those private times as well that we've talked about. Um, I don't know about you, but sometimes I find that the most blessed moments I have is when I'm on a long journey, you know, on the road, you know, traveling for work or something, and, and I'll be listening to something or, or, or hearing a sermon, and I'll be praising and, and worshiping God privately. Yeah, no one can hear me apart from the Lord. I don't care. That's fine. That's great. There's a place for that. So when we gather to remember the glorious person and work of our God, our Savior, who sent his son to die for us, um, our minds should be so full of the reality of, of, of the great salvation that he's, he's given to us. Our hearts should be so full with, with the joy of that salvation. And our bodies as well, our emotions should be exuberant and displaying that, that great salvation. So finally, who? Who is to praise? And in verse 6 of 150, let everything that has breath praise the Lord and praise the Lord. So if you're breathing, yeah, if you're not sure, just, you know, just hover your hand over your mouth. If you're breathing, this applies to you. You're supposed to do it. That's why God is actually so offended by the ungodly. Because they refuse to praise him. Yeah, they're not thankful. As Romans 1 says, they will not glorify him. But all of us are created by God. All of us are given breath by God. And you know, one of the most harrowing verses in all of Scripture is found in 1 Thessalonians 8 to 9, where Paul is describing the fate of those who, what? Do not know God and of those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That command is for all creation to praise him. They owe God praise, not least as their maker. But they're not, they're not rendering that praise, just like what Roman 1 says. And so in a way, their judgment is due to a self-fulfilling prophecy of their own disobedience. And in Psalm 149, 6-9, you know, it can be a bit confusing because here we are talking about praise, and then all of a sudden... Significant attention in those three verses are given to judgment, seemingly out of nowhere. And we read that a two-edged sword is to be in the hands of God's people. So while we sing his high praises, rich, meaningful, joyful praise for the seriousness of our salvation and for the goodness of God's character, the saints are also to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples and binding their kings and nobles executing judgment, and then seeing this as the honor for all saints. These are tough words and can be confusing. I think Charles Spurgeon 
carefully and most helpfully explains this when he writes that executing vengeance and judgment was once literally the duty of Israel. When they came into Canaan, they fulfilled the righteous sentence of the Lord upon the guilty. You see that in the book of Joshua. Now, he also continues, At this hour, in this present time, under gentler dispensation of grace, we now wrestle not with flesh and blood, yet our warfare nonetheless Yet is our warfare nonetheless stern and our victory nonetheless sure. All evil shall eventually be overthrown. The Lord shall display his justice against evildoers. In that warfare, his servants will play their parts. So what do we take from this? Well, warfare and praise go hand in hand. But our warfare is after a different fashion. It's the spiritual kind. The sword we wield in our hands is our reliance on the very word of God, which Hebrews 4.12 describes as sharper than any two-edged sword. Ephesians 6.17, Paul, he calls it the sword of the Spirit. And so Spurgeon also writes this, he says, The word of God is all edge. Whichever way we turn it, it strikes deadly blows at falsehood and wickedness. If we do not praise, we shall grow sad in our conflict. If... We do not fight, we shall become presumptuous in our song. So these verses indicate a happy blending of the chorister and the crusader. In some way, beyond our present comprehension, God will use his people in setting right the wrongs of this present age. Even if our participation is only as an audience to the righteous judgments of God, but it will be an honor to all his saints. So... Brothers and sisters, may our praise be deep and rich and understanding praise. In a response to the knowledge of the truth, we praise God in a way that is fitting, and especially for the gift of his Son. So how do we end then? Well, we end the way the Psalms end. It says here, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let all God's people say, Amen. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for this privilege of praising you. Uh, We couldn't do it if we weren't your own. We thank you for saving us and for making us true worshippers. May your great name be praised throughout all the earth and above all others. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.